You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Is the public turning against Brexit? That's the big question on this week's show. Sky Data had a poll out this week that caused quite a stir by suggesting that the public now supports a second referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union, and they'd also back Remain over a no-deal Brexit by a margin of 59 to 41%. But are we getting ahead of ourselves? And even if public opinion has changed, does it even matter? We'll be taking a closer look at the numbers on this week's podcast and asking these very important questions. Also on the show, we'll also be discussing some exclusive politicalbetting.com opinion polling that looks at what the public think about different political ideologies and systems. Is communism on the way back, as some on the left have said? And how much can polling about these sorts of topics really tell us? We'll be talking about that too. And we'll also make some time to look at who pays for polling and research more generally. The IEA has been in the news this week with pressure on them to release details about their donor base. And we'll be asking, is that important? And what can it tell us about the way we consume data and news more generally? So to discuss, to, to discuss a lot of these topics this week, I'm joined as ever by fellow podcaster Leo Barassi. Leo, welcome to Polling Matters. Hello, Kieran. So this week, I think there was quite a stir, wasn't there, caused by um, Sky Data, um, a friend of the show, Harry Carr, obviously runs that outfit, um, saying that the public had turned against Brexit. And I just want to, for the benefit of listeners that haven't sort of seen this yet, I'll read out a couple of key stats, and then I'll sort of get your view on it. Um, so 78% of the public told Sky Data um, they think the government's doing a bad job negotiating Brexit. 65% think the government will get a bad deal. And probably the one that caused the biggest stir was that 50% back a referendum um, between the deal the government wants, uh, no deal, and staying in the EU. 40% oppose that, 10% don't know. And then there was also, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, there was some polling saying that on a second preference basis, when everything's taken into account, 59% would back remain versus 41% would back no deal. And then if we look at that on a three-way horse race, um, 48% would say remain, 27% would say leave with no deal, 13% said said leave with the deal uh, suggested by the government. So this paints a picture uh, of a real sort of negative um, view of Brexit among the public. But what do you you think? So it feels to me like this poll has shown a bit of movement from what previous polls have shown, but not quite the sort of radical change that it's been made out to. So to give a couple of examples and a bit of context, YouGov's tracker has for a while been showing a gradual increase in the sense that the government is doing badly at negotiating Brexit. So uh, if you look back to, say, April, you had roughly a net score uh, that is well minus badly of of around uh, 23, 28 points Uh, Sorry, minus 23, minus 28 points. Generally, people had a sense it was going badly. In the last month, according to YouGov, that has really surged to more like minus 60 or so. So there's definitely been a sense from other pollsters that the government is handling it badly. Now, obviously, that doesn't in itself translate to saying that people think that the results should be overturned, that they would prefer to stay in and that there should be another referendum. I think what this poll has done is gone a little bit further than what we've seen with other polls. So again, comparing the YouGov poll that we talked about last week, which asked a similar three-way question, uh, we had there, again, a sense that uh, people preferred to 
stay in rather than leaving with no deal, uh, but just a little bit less than we've had here. So I would treat this as a potential sign that views have hardened a bit, but I don't think that it's it's quite as revolutionary as some have interpreted it as. I think the my, my big... Um... I don't know if problem's the right word, but my, my big sort of gripe with this poll was the way it was interpreted by Sky, which uh, bizarrely, um, you might think, considering it's a Sky data poll, is not the not the fault of Sky data and Harry that ran the poll. But, um, you know, there was a Twitter moments thing that, that said, um, you know, how the public turned against Brexit. And, you know, there was hours of coverage uh, to that effect. And I think that you're right to say there's a, there's a bit of a stretch when you when you look at some of these numbers. And I want to sort of build on one of the points you mentioned, which is it's important not to conflate it going badly uh, or, or the perceptions of Brexit going badly and, and Theresa May losing popularity with people turning against the idea itself. It may very well be that more people think Brexit is going badly because um, there are levers who want a more a tougher, harder Brexit that don't like Theresa May's deal, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I think the the... The question that gives me the most pause and sort of makes me most wonder whether something really has changed is this one on whether there should be a referendum on what comes back. And as we've noted in the past, the results of those questions very much depend on how they're phrased. So it's quite difficult to compare what you've got here with what we've seen in the past. And YouGov, again, um, have been asking the same question consistently and have been seeing a slow reasonably steady shift towards people saying that there should be a second referendum um, or a referendum on the terms of of the deal, um, which in their latest poll had for the first time a net belief that there should be a vote. But what's interesting here is I think as far as I'm aware, this is the first time I've, I've seen the question posed with should there be a vote on the government's terms? No deal or staying in the EU. So I think this is the first poll, first polling question I've seen that has asked whether there should be another vote on um, on it framed in that three uh, choice option. And this time you do get 50% saying that there should be. So uh, as opposed to 40% saying that it shouldn't be. So mm. it does feel like there's something interesting there. And what I guess it comes down to is this sense that if no deal is on the table, then the public should get another view. And I feel like what that might be interestingly reflecting in a way we haven't seen before is that the public debate, the sort of political debate, I guess, is changing in a way that no deal is now becoming a serious consideration. And if that's the case, then perhaps the these polling questions do need to be looked at differently. I mean, going back to that horse race, which you mentioned, there's this three-way horse race. Um, just to remind listeners, um, 48% told Sky Data that they said if it was a three-way choice between um, remain, leave with no deal, leave with the government's deal. Remain was on 48% versus 27% for no deal and 13% for um, leave with the government's deal or checkers, which is quite a consistent sort of shorthand for that. It strikes me that you know 48%, I mean, yes, it is literally what um, Remain got in the, um, the referendum, although it's perhaps not apples of apples in terms of how we're comparing that. But it is still less than half, right? And I wonder whether people are sort of misinterpreting the 21-point lead that has over leaving with no deal as as a seismic shift against leaving per se. I don't know. I think there's, there's a way of reading that sort of free horse race, which by definition splits the leave vote. 
that I think we need to be careful about over-interpreting. Um, also, if you if you re- if you're uh, those who are good at maths, uh, listening to me read out those numbers, will notice that that actually ends up at 48 versus uh, 40, which leaves 12% saying that they don't know. So I think there's a, there's a bit of uncertainty here, and I think we just need to be really careful about saying that some suddenly people want to remain after all. Um, it may go that way, um, but it doesn't seem to be that way yet. And there's just one other uh, couple of uh, findings from the numbers you've been talking about with YouGov that I think are important. Um, you mentioned right to leave versus wrong to leave. Yes, there's a four-point lead for wrong at the moment, but that's been bouncing around four points all year. In fact, the first poll of the year in January um, was a four-point lead for wrong. No obvious sign of a huge shift there. 46% thinking it's wrong to leave, 42% thinking it's right. Um, if we look at other things like immigration, uh, in March of 2018 this year, 50% said there'd be less immigration after Brexit. 47% said that in August 20, 2016. Britain being economically worse off, um, 42% said that that would be the case as a result of Brexit in um, March 2018, 38% in August 16. I don't know, I think, I think just generally, I'm throwing a lot of numbers out there, but I think that there's just, the headline for me is that there isn't an obvious seismic shift against Brexit. There's just a bit more uncertainty. And I suppose in that uncertainty, things can change, right? Yeah, I wonder if what we're kind of bouncing around here is um, the debate that there's been for a while, I mean, since since before the referendum, was kind of the ideal of should Britain be in or out of the EU? Is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? What these polling questions are beginning to ask is perhaps a bit more specific of here are the options that are on the table, uh, something like the Chequers deal, no deal, or staying in on the previous terms. And when it's when people are asked questions like that, rather than a kind of hypothetical or sort of more abstract right to leave, wrong to leave, then perhaps that's where opinion is slightly different from what we've expected. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case and uh, it would translate to an outcome in a particular in a referendum or whatever but it does feel like we're now asking people to think about the question in a different way in a more tangible way if you've got three options on the table what do you want which forces perhaps a different process from the the more idealized was it right or wrong um and you know perhaps perhaps that is the way the debate is going and so perhaps that is the more relevant kind of questioning that we should be looking at mm, i mean it it is still a slight, somewhat. I guess I, I would concede to some extent it's the way the debate's going because I think that the prime minister wants it to be her deal versus no deal. Remainers obviously want to try and discredit Brexit completely, and you know the, the more ardent Brexiter wants to get towards a Canada-style free trade deal, as they call it. So they want to like um, tight torpedo checkers. It's still not, but that, that they aren't the only three choices that we have, right? I mean, I, I full disclosure, I'm sort of gradually coming to the view of some sort of long-term transition in the EEA would be best, although I don't see anyone really advocating for that. But the point is that no one's really polling about that, are they? And maybe that's because no one's seriously um, seriously proposing that at the moment, sort of Norway plus or Norway model, that sort of thing. But I suppose that if you have these relatively um, artificial three choices, it does create that, again, I'll go back to the point I said before, it creates this impression of Remain being significantly ahead of other options, whereas... I don't know. I, and the, the secondary, so very quick additional point I would make is that we've got to be really careful about horse race questions about the um, about, about the European Union and Britain's relationship with it. The horse race wasn't that reliable in the referendum itself. 
And if you look at some of these um, polls that are showing Remain ahead, and it typically is sort of 52, 40, 48, 53, 47, usually they appear to be because new voters, so people that didn't vote in 2016, are much more Remain. Now, that's really interesting if that's true. Maybe it's new younger voters coming into the mix. Maybe it's people that didn't want to vote last time because they didn't think there was a point suddenly wanting to vote. But we've got to be really careful about that from a sampling perspective and just trying to work out what are the proportions of the next electorate if there is a referendum that wouldn't have voted last time. I guess, you know, the long story short is very, very cautious about knowing for sure how the horse race goes if there's another referendum. Because we don't know when it is and we don't know what the electorate's going to look like. And it might be a boring methodological point, but it's actually really important to how we look at these numbers. Yeah, I think that's all fair. Um I mean, just looking at how the numbers have bounced around in the last couple of weeks, I think it reinforces the perspective that these numbers are quite soft. Most people don't have very firm views or understandings of what the options on the table really would be. Um, I mean, I think on your point of sort of this is putting into artificial boxes and narrowing down the range of options from a very large number to a very small number is artificial, but in the end, if you're going to do an exercise in consulting the public in a in a sort of uh, formalized way, like a referendum, then you've got to narrow down the options. So that's not something you can really get away from, is it? No, I suppose not. But then at the end, I mean, I think the, the three-way horse race is a decent way of trying to measure public opinion and particularly understanding the strength of support for no deal. I do think that's uh, important. Um, but at the same time, I don't, we talked about this last week. No one's really offering this three-way referendum, are they? You know, so um, Sky Data quite sensibly asked people this um, this question in a two-stage process, where it said, right, which of the three options—deal, no deal, or remain—would um, you take? And then knocked out the, the the government's deal and reallocated second preferences to get to the figures I introduced at the beginning, which is fifty-nine percent remain, forty-one percent um, no deal. But, I mean, that's not the choice that the government's going to make people make, is it? I mean, what Theresa May clearly wants it to be about her deal versus no deal and has, and has said there will be no referendum money any, under any circumstances. So, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this three-way choice, although interesting for public opinion, is a bit of a red herring. Well, I, I mean, I think you're right in terms of where they are at the moment, but this is an iterative, iterative process. Public opinion is going to influence the political system and how decisions are made now i i suggest um if it looks like there is steadily growing support for um you know for remaining over the other two options that are on the table then there are going to be mps who are going to potentially feel emboldened to um rebel against the government or rebel against their party whip or whatever um i don't know i'm not saying it's necessarily going to happen but i i wouldn't dismiss these questions as just sort of esoteric because i think they are getting at something that is a genuine debate that politicians who are going to be considering the impact of their decisions on their careers are going to be wondering about yeah i would call them esoteric i think they are they are useful i just think that we need to be really careful about how we interpret them it should make um just while you were speaking i was thinking about this it should make the labor party conference somewhat interesting shouldn't it because I mean, we know ever since day one, um, Labour voters and Labour members as well you know, support a second vote. They they support Remain. They voted Remain um, by a large margin. I mean, a, a decent chunk of Labour voters voted Leave as well. But I mean, this is this is, could put some pressure on Jeremy Corbyn, do you think? Or do you think he's pretty confident about managing it? 
Well, yeah, in principle, it could. Um, but he's managed to get this far uh, with his members and uh, voters not being in the same place as him. And it hasn't undermined his ability to talk about democratizing the party. Uh, so I'm not convinced. I see a real process for this to undermine his position um, of constructive ambiguity. I mean, I do want to move on shortly, but I, I do think there's a really interesting um, debate to be had within the Labour Party about this. I was talking to, I think it's Michael Walker from Navarra Media um, on Twitter, fairly sort of friendly exchange. Seems like a, seems like a decent guy um, about this, and he, you know, he he was he was he replied to something I said about the democratisation of the Labour Party and saying it wasn't necessarily a contradiction to be able to get the membership to choose MPs but not formulate policy. And I just thought that was a little bit of a, I don't know, a little bit cheeky. It sounded a bit like basically this democratization of the Labour Party is really just party control by another name, isn't it? it, it well, you know, actually I saw that exchange and to my surprise, I found myself being uh, pretty sympathetic to his view. Um, look, in a representative democracy, uh, we... Uh, comfortable with the idea that we choose our elected representatives through the voting process and then they go on and work out the policy detail and we believe that we live in a democracy when that's the case or we, we accept that we do. Um, it, isn't that pretty much what he's suggesting the Labour Party should be doing? The members should get to choose their representatives and then the representatives work out the detail of policy. But, but yeah, we, I mean, basically, so this was this was for the benefit of listeners who can, you know, who if you're on Twitter, you go and have a look at the exchange. I, I was basically challenging the notion of let's let's have um, automatic selection, reselection of MPs and that sort of thing. Um, but let's not have conference set policy. And I was challenging that a bit by saying, well, hang on a minute, if you want, if you believe in party democracy, surely you should have both or none, right? Or, yeah, you should have, surely conference should set policy. And also, yeah, reselect your MPs if you want. And you'll give, if, you're, if you're giving all of your power to members, which, I was, which is supposed to be what this is about, surely you should be prepared for that membership to change policy, even if the leadership doesn't like it. And that seems to be where Michael and people that support this stop short. And you, you mentioned it, that point about representative democracy. Well, but that... <sighs> It just sort of implies that basically everything becomes all or nothing. Corbyn's, Corbyn's the leader versus a moderate's the leader. What if the membership wants another referendum and remain and Corbyn being the leader? How do they make that happen? Well, right. OK, so they can't sustain the position that they are fully democratising the party in every way that's possible and contain control over policy. But I don't think it's an intellectually incoherent position to say uh, we're going to give members control over who the representatives are but our party policy process is going to uh, have control over the policy. I think that's a perfectly respectable position and still consider yourself a Democrat. Mm. If you take that, sure, you perhaps should shut up a little bit about how you're uh, radically revitalising grassroots democracy and giving power away because clearly you're not. And actually, I think it's quite sensible not to give power um, on policy-making processes away all the time because sometimes the people who are closest to the policy know know the details and the nuances of it best. But regardless of that, and regardless of my view, I think it's an okay position to hold. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's fine. It's fine if, look, you know, if the Labour Party is a left-wing party now and a left-wing membership, that's fine. That That's what people want. And, you know, that'll have a Corbyn leadership and a sort of Corbynite successor. 
but let's not pretend it's all about this all this democratization is about altruism and generating a sort of member-based movement when in reality it's you know this they still the left-wing leadership still wants to lead and still wants to control. yeah look this isn't starting from a position where they come up with their principles first and then apply them to policy i yeah. mean it's uh yeah, let's move on anyway, because we've got this um, uh, poll from opinion, politicalbetting.com opinion poll that we want to talk about. I was doing the rounds on social media um, yesterday. Um, and this was a question that I was really keen, keen on looking at. So for the benefit of people that haven't seen it yet, we asked people, based on your knowledge, do you have a positive or negative view of the following political ideologies or systems? And people were given a uh, four-point scale of very positive to very negative, and then a don't-know option. And what we've done uh, for the benefit of making things simple to digest, particularly for listeners, is we've taken a net positive score. So we've subtracted the people that were negative from the people that were positive um, and we, and we tried to see how uh, how sort of positively these different ideologies were viewed. So, for example, um, socialism had a score of minus 11. Uh, 32% saw socialism as a positive thing. 43% said negative. 26% said don't know. So uh, for, uh, 32 minus 43 is minus 11, and that gets a score of minus 11. So hopefully that explains what we mean by net positive. So I'm going to rank uh, in ascending order. So social democracy plus 22, liberal democracy plus 11, capitalism minus 7, socialism minus 11, libertarianism minus 14, communism minus 52, we'll come back to that, anarchism minus 55, and fascism minus 67. It was pointed out to me that I missed nationalism, so apologies for that. This isn't a perfect question. Um, but I thought that was there's some interesting numbers in there, Leo. I mean, what did you make of it? Yeah, lots of interesting stuff going on in there. So uh, a few things that jumped out at me, starting with the two winners, liberal democracy and social democracy, really interesting distinctions in the uh, age splits. So in liberal democracy, that's very much something that young younger people, uh, I'm going to say young people, it's 18 to 34. So consider people in that age group young as um I'm sure some listeners will be. <laughs> um, um, whereas older people are much uh, less big fans of liberal democracy. Um, social democracy, interestingly, uh, much more evenly spread, uh, spread, very little age distinction. Even uh, conservative and UKIP supporters really only sort of mildly negative or about even. So uh, actually, you know, it com comes out top, uh, but quite clear that social democracy is the sort of the I don't know the label the ideology that people are most happy with across the spectrum um I, I think it's important before you go on I think it's important here just to, to dwell a little bit on the uh the, the mechanics of this survey question it's not flawless right you know we're asking people do they have positive or negative views of systems like social democracy wildly open to interpretation of what people actually think that means um, and one person's definition will be different to another's right and I don't think either of us on this podcast are trying to suggest that this is the perfect way of measuring support for let's say socialism versus capitalism or something like that but if you if you sort of take in mind that not all data is perfect it's a it's a fair neutral question based on people's interpretations and there are clearly different interpretations wildly different interpretations in some cases of these terms so i think it's useful we should always caveat that you know people will interpret this how they want to in terms of what they mean right yeah let's be absolutely clear what what we're measuring here is how people think of the title of those terms rather than the details of what they would mean in practice and i think perhaps the best example of where that comes out is the distinction between communism and socialism. Now, um, I've done a bit of political theory in my time. I've got a general sense that there's some distinction between them, but 
to be honest, if you ask me to explain it off the cuff, I'd kind of struggle a bit. Um, and yet the two of them have very different scores. So capitalism, sorry, socialism is minus 11 overall, communism minus 52 overall. Um, and it's really striking. So even among young people, communism does spectacularly badly, minus 30 um, net, and only 5% are positive about it. Whereas among young people, socialism, on the other hand, has a net plus 14. And in fact, even among the middle age group, 35 to 54, socialism only gets about minus 10. So interesting. Clearly, this isn't, I think we could say, about people's engagement with the theoretical difference between communism and socialism. I think it's fair to say this is much more about the sort of perception, the branding, as as it were, of the two of them. Yeah, and that might very well be. Um, I mean, part of what prompted like doing this question was this whole debate about I'm a communist, you idiot, with um, Ash Sarkar, um and Owen Jones sort of talking about this and communism being rehabilitate, rehabilitated. Um, I can't remember the exact term you used, but something along those lines. I mean, 13% having a positive opinion of communism overall, 65% um, having a negative uh, opinion, so that's minus 52, as you mentioned. Um, you know, clearly negative connotations there with, with with that ideology. I suppose that's probably that people thinking about Stalin and, you know, murders and all sorts of different things, state murder and the Soviet Union and maybe Mao and that sort of thing, just having a very negative impact. But one of the things that struck me looking at some of these numbers was Labour voters actually had uh, the most positive view of social democracy. Haha. <laughs> Plus 43 uh, versus socialism, plus 31. And then communism was minus 39. So even among, uh, even among like Labour voters who you would have thought, and I haven't looked at other parties, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume Labour voters, um, you know, minus 39 versus an average of minus 52, clearly more positive <laughs> or, or less negative than people overall. But yeah, Labour voters aren't really stomaching communism either, right? So I suppose we've got to be careful about saying that this is an ideology that's been rehabilitated, even though, to be fair, I know that the people that are advocating for this, such as Ash, they have a completely different interpretation of what communism is versus what it has ever been. Um, and I suppose you can critique that if you like. But the point is that they're not advocating for Maoism or Stalinism, which is what people well, are well, thinking right, about but here. If, if we're starting from the position that in terms of what's deliverable in the UK, there's not a huge amount of distinction between communism and socialism. So if you're going to pick one of them to be your description of Jeremy Corbyn's ideology or what you'd like his ideology to be and where... A, where you think the country should go it seems purely from a public communications perspective to make a lot more sense to say i'm a socialist you idiot rather than i'm a communist you idiot absolutely and actually i think i was thinking about america when um, i was looking at these numbers um often the sanders people over there they don't call themselves well some of them do some of them call themselves socialists but often they call themselves democratic socialists don't they it's a very Maybe it's a weird semantic difference that doesn't really mean anything. But I do wonder, actually, whether whether you call yourself a social democrat, which that has certain connotations for people that study politics closely. Um, maybe a democratic socialist is even probably the, even even the strongest way of rehabilitating all of these terms. Um, there was one other one other thing that I did think was important to call out, which was that actually socialism and capitalism were pretty neck and neck. Um, Capitalism had a slightly better score of minus seven versus socialism's minus 11. So, you know, it's not so much that ideologically or at least instinctively people think capitalism's great, is it? 
Yeah, I mean, capitalism was, I found quite interesting because there wasn't much age difference in people's views of it. I think it's easy to kind of pick up a sense, I guess, from social media and certainly from the hand-wringing that you see on some conservative websites that young people have turned against capitalism and it's all a disaster and we need to open a museum to the horrors of communism or whatever. Um, but actually, what what you got from this is, is generally not much um not much difference between younger and old pe older people about it. And also what was what struck me about it, something that doesn't get pulled out by the net score, is in fact with capitalism, most people are in the middle. So 54% are either fairly positive or fairly negative, mm. compared with only 21% who are very positive or very negative. So really, most people have something of a nuanced position of it. They, they think that it generally does some good and some bad, and um, for some, one slightly outweighs the other, but it's not like a radical view. I mean, final point before we move on to our final topic, which I think that some people did allude to in their response to this survey. And I would encourage uh, listeners old and new to you know, get in touch. Are, are there ones we're missing when nationalism was mentioned? Um, are there other ways you'd like us to look at this question? Because I, it's something I do want to come back to over time. I think it's an, it's an interesting debate about what people think of these different ideologies and what that says about our politics. But um, one of the things that people did say was, well, what, what do people know by these terms? And I suppose one of those is what we said earlier, which is that, um, you know, people have different interpretations of what liberal democracy means is it about the liberal democrats for example or is it about something else but the other thing is literally do people have a view at all and if you go through the don't knows which are not included in the net score 44 percent said they don't know what they think about libertarianism right so libertarian libertarianism might have a minus 14 score versus socialisms of minus 11 but 44 percent didn't know what libertarianism was versus 26 percent saying they didn't know what socialism was um, and that number for socialism, generally speaking, was pretty much par for all the all of these ideologies. It was around. I mean, fascism was the most known. I think I, I'm, I'm right in saying, yeah, twenty percent said don't know, so eighty percent had a view on fascism. Whereas for the, all of the others that weren't libertarianism, it was in between, sort of uh, twenty three and twenty nine percent saying don't know. So it's true there is a Westminster bubble. We all know that. Not everyone focuses on this stuff. About three in ten don't really know what any of this means. But I still think the wild, wild differences we saw between different scores in terms of those nets are telling and do tell us something, even if it's imperfect. So, you know, look forward to other people into, um, getting in touch about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fact that um, people, the fact that people give this difference of socialism, communism, I think is a fairly clear indicator that people aren't deeply engaging with the content of the ideology. But I think this high score for libertarianism on don't know, I think is a good sign that this poll does have some meaning. It also allows me to uh, suggest that this high score for don't know on libertarianism gives a new meaning to the phrase Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> A, debate, a joke that I thought was quite funny, but Kieran didn't. So you, the listener, can tell tell us whether or not. Maybe we'll was. stick that in the next poll. Um, yeah, no, um, and I guess you know the final comment on it. I mean, going, going back to going back to the whole communism socialism thing. I think it's. Uh, I'd be interested to see how John, people like John McDonnell interpret some of this stuff uh, over time because yeah, he's referred to himself as a Marxist in the past but has always, I think, tried to play that down a bit ever since. I think that people at the top of the Labour Party now do probably appreciate that you can't go around calling yourself a communist. Um, but anyway, 
let's move on. Um, final topic for today is yours, Leo. Um, who pays for polls? So this feels it's something we've wanted to discuss for a little while on this program, isn't it? But um, it seems to be more relevant these days, um, not picking on the IEA, but they have been, um, other people have been sort of calling them out on who, who are your donors, and there was an undercover investigation about this and what that tells us. And I suppose that with that backdrop, it felt uh, like an appropriate time to revisit this topic, and I know you're, you're very interested in it. So explain, explain why you're interested in it and what you found. Right, yeah. So the IEA thing is obviously, here's a think tank that is publishing reports that are funded secretively. Um, so there's an IEA branding on reports that um, may or may not be uh, heavily linked with particular companies. But the interesting thing is, I think there's an argument that the same thing's happening in polling. And I was prompted by this um think about this by a poll that was conducted by Comres for a group that calls itself We the People. Um, and the poll claimed that the public think the police are losing control of the streets, political correctness is getting in the way of them doing their job and so on. Um, got the front page story on the mail a couple of weeks ago, which to be honest is a pretty good thing for a poll mm. to get. I mean, that's a good result. Um, you've got to think that uh, the poll wouldn't have cost more than a couple of grand. So Getting that, getting a front page in the mail for that is a brilliant investment. Now, what's interesting here is the British Polling Council's rules say that agencies have to disclose who commissions the poll, Rule 2.1. And in this case, Comrades can say it was we, the people, who commissioned it. But that really doesn't actually tell us much. We, the people, isn't a company. It isn't a charity. As far as I can tell, it is literally just a website and a Twitter account doesn't list any members of staff. In fact, all we can see is the name of the PR agency that represents it. So knowing that it's we the people who paid for it really doesn't tell us much. And it strikes me that in the context of Russian interference in US politics, the US right around Steve Bannon uh, explicitly saying that they want to influence the results of the EU elections, wouldn't it be useful to know who fund, who's paying for these polls? I mean, just saying that it was uh, an, an essentially a secretive group that is that has a name but nothing else about it kind of doesn't really tell us whether the poll was commissioned by say well any number of different groups that, that you could imagine and I think if there are certain groups who if they commissioned it it would have led to the poll being treated in a different way but the way the polling council rules mean that, you can essentially look like a think tank or a campaign group uh, and get get that as being your only label associated with the poll gets you softer treatment than perhaps a tr the true funder might. Because there's two things going on here. One is I think we can always, you know, comrades have done, the first thing to say is that they've been perfectly proper and above board. They've published the tables. They've, you know, they've, they've, they've com com, um, complied with the rules that they're supposed to and all the rest of it. So we can look at their poll and decide if we think it's a good poll or a bad poll. <laughs> Incidentally, I think on the one in question, there was there was some slightly strange questions around, um, do you think the police are too politically correct? Um, or they, what was it? They're, they're too hamstrung yeah. by political correctness, or yeah, they treat everyone equally. There's some, there's some dodgy stuff, I think, in how the poll is structured and how it's worded. But that's uh, something we can obviously yeah, we can debate. Yeah, and we have done. Well, yeah, we can debate it. But I think the point is, um, we can debate it, and nerds like us who get into polling can debate it. But that doesn't really stop it getting the front page in the Daily Mail. Like that—that's a level of debate that happens at the kind of the the Twitter wonkery level. Mm. But if if you're if you look like a proper think tank 
and you get a poll that gets a result that looks broadly credible, then you get scrutinized less than you would be if you were a private company or uh, you know a, fo- uh, a foreign political actor commissioning the poll. So what would we what would we do? What would we, what would we want the British Parliament Council to do here? Because I mean, to, to, to disclose individuals. Well, ultimately, I mean, what we need to know is who who is the the final the final funder of this poll. So whose money actually is this? Not who who was it channeled through? Because someone could obviously easily set up a bank account called We the People, but. Really, I guess, in the way that presumably like the Charity Commission would be expecting, um, there should be some kind of transparency in terms of where the money is coming from. Perhaps that's not even right about the Charity Commission. Obviously, um, one of the controversies about the IEA is that they're a charity, but their funding isn't isn't transparent. So perhaps it needs to go further. Yeah, and I think that there's only so much that fantastic polling related podcasts that uh, scrutinise this stuff in detail can do, eh, Leo? Um but anyway, that's all we've got time for for this week's uh, Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. Uh, a great episode this week. Uh, lots to chew over. Um, if you like what you hear, do get in touch. Uh, do suggest other topics that we might cover or um, polls you'd like to see um, out there. Um, and if you can see your way, please do share us on social media and uh, give us a positive rating on iTunes or other podcast apps. Um, as I am, as I almost tire of mentioning, uh, this does help the algorithm gods push our podcast out there and get new listeners. And that's always a great thing. So for now, thanks ever so much for listening and enjoy your week. <laughs>